Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name is Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. And we'll be your hosts for today. The Business Diaries is a storytelling platform for businessmen and women to share their stories, the ups and the downs of the entrepreneur, and giving us a look at the person behind the business and hearing about all their successes and learnings. Today, we're going to hear a story that begins as a harmless rummage through a box of old memories, but then it turns into something much more. Who's in the guest seat, Isla? Oh, I'm delighted to announce that Hilary Lees is our storyteller guest today. Welcome to the show, Hilary. Thank you, Isla. Lovely to be here. Welcome. Hilary is a leadership coach and trainer who specialises in helping leaders build their resilience and their soft people skills to create mentally healthy workplace cultures where both people and performance flourish. She is uniquely placed and qualified to do this work, having spent 20 years formally as an occupational therapist in a variety of frontline NHS mental health services, as well as from her own lived experience. We're delighted to have you on the show, Hilary. Um, Over to you. Thank you, Isla. So it all started with a bunch of letters. I was seven years old, sitting cross-legged on the floor on the rug in my bedroom. And my mum was keeping me amused by letting me look through an old dusty box full of memorabilia from the attic. There were old sepia black and white photos of ancestors staring out stiffly at me. There were letters from my mum's ex-boyfriends declaring their devotion to her, which was delightful to read. Photos of her as a young woman sitting atop the handsome shoulders of a ski instructor. It was a real treasure trove and so fascinating for me to see a side to my mum that I had never seen before. I felt like I was being granted a window into her world before me and my brother arrived. And I was having a great time unlocking and unpacking these secrets from her past and learning more about her. But then I came across a bundle of letters that had an altogether different tone. They were far more sorrowful, sad and plaintive. They said things like, I hate it in here. Why have you left me here? And when are you going to come and see me? I was intrigued. I didn't know who they were from, so I ran downstairs to ask my mum. She was sitting at her Singer sewing machine making my latest ballet outfit, and I remember how the colour drained from her face when she realised what I had seen. She stood up and snatched the letters from my hands and told me that they were nothing for me to worry about and that she would tell me when I was older. She left me standing there a little dumbfounded. It wasn't until I was 25 that I discovered the truth. During a heart-to-heart with my mum, she revealed that those letters had come from her mother from the mental institution she'd been incarcerated in. My grandmother, Lily, my mum's mum, had had schizophrenia and she was admitted to Balming Hospital when my mum was 15 after her dad had suddenly died. 
effectively orphaning her. Mum had had a traumatic childhood. She'd witnessed domestic violence. She was um, excluded and bullied at school. And she had acute shame as a consequence of living with her mother's illness. She broke down and cried when she told me this history that she'd lived through. I had never seen her cry. I was more shocked by seeing her cry than actually the story that she told me. Being of the post-war stoical generation, my mum suppressed all of her emotions, stuffed them down and never talked about them or dealt with the early years experiences she'd had. But what we resist persists. The scars of mum's early life experiences played out in her hypervigilance and acute anxiety that she still has to this day. I was taught that people weren't to be trusted, that showing emotion or any vulnerability for that matter was a weakness and that I needed to toughen up and not let others see how I truly felt. Which was easier said than done. I'm naturally sensitive and empathetic, which as an adult, I now harness as my superpower in my work. But as a child, it made me really porous to others' emotions. So unsurprisingly, I too went on to develop anxiety and I had chronic low self-esteem for much of my teens and 20s as a result of absorbing my mum's responses and her ways of coping. It was also a result of growing up in a fairly volatile, unpredictable household. My dad, who could be really loving, kind and generous, also had a vicious, volatile temper that could flare up at any moment. So we spent a lot of time walking on eggshells, my mum, brother and I, to try and keep him happy. As a young girl, my anxiety manifested itself as OCD. I had these compulsive behaviours and rituals that I had to complete. For example, I would touch my fitted wardrobe doors 12 times in three different patterns before I felt safe enough to finally drift off to sleep. I also had an imaginary enemy who I called Blackie. Most children take comfort in having an imaginary friend, but typically I had to have the imaginary enemy. And I would act out all sorts of scenarios with my friends when we were playing to overcome this evil negative overlord that was in my head. As an adult, looking back now, I realized these behaviors made me feel safe and helped me process my experience of the world that I had no language at that time to explore in any other way. As I grew older, I learned to mirror my mum's example of stuffing down and suppressing my true feelings. And instead, I became an expert at reading people. So I would read a room and then give them what they wanted to see. So a pattern of overgiving and people pleasing began. My pleaser saboteur was born. I also learned I could gain approval if I achieved well at school. So I studied really hard and I got great academic results. And a pattern of working hard to prove my worth also began. My hyperachiever saboteur was born. Despite doing well at school and university and beginning to carve a career path out for myself, these victories felt hollow. 
as the real me inside wasn't being seen or acknowledged. I really struggled to fit in socially or feel like I belonged anywhere. And I had a series of doomed relationships in my 20s as I played out familiar patterns of being what I thought other people wanted me to be and trying to rescue fairly dysfunctional partners. And what we resist assists. The turning point for me came in my mid-20s when I was training to become an occupational therapist and doing my first psychiatric placement. I learned two crucial things. One, there was a label that explained how I felt, the negative beliefs, thoughts and feelings I had about myself and how this affected my behaviour. Anxiety. Two, and more importantly, that there was something I could do to learn to control and change this state. And this knowledge changed everything for me. What I read in that book that day was a huge relief and a revelation. It changed my entire perception of what had gone before, empowered me, and it set me free on, to, go, to go and follow a personal development path to build resilience for myself and others. I learned to understand how our minds work and crucially the importance of working with our emotions and thoughts to proactively look after our mental health and well-being rather than just suppressing these and pretending that they aren't there. Through therapy and then coaching, I learned a language to express how I felt and I grew to appreciate how being seen, truly heard and having a compassionate listener builds true connection and self-worth. And this is what sets us free from our past. It took me many years to become fully com comfortable and conversant with my emotions and the strengths that come from embracing and working with them. I've now been in this sector for 30 years, helping other people develop their resilience. I just wish my mum and grandmother could have had access to this and how that little girl counting doors would have felt so much more confident and happy in herself if they had. We now know so much more about how our minds work and how stress impacts our higher and our lower brain. Findings from modern neuroscience, performance science and positive and cognitive psychology allow us to harness our higher brain resilience and resourcefulness and minimize the survival brain stress reactions and saboteurs that we develop in our childhoods. Effectively, we can learn how to control our mental state rather than have our minds control us. I firmly believe that if my mum or grandmother had had the benefits of this knowledge and support, that their distress and problems could have been minimized or curtailed. And by virtue of that, so could mine. This then drove me as a mental health professional for the next 20 years, and it now informs the work I do as a coach and trainer, helping leaders proactively develop their resilience, emotional intelligence and empathy so they are in a better place to compassionately support their people in kind. What drives me now is mental health prevention. Research has shown that if you can help someone be 5% more resilient, then they have a 10 to 15% lower risk of going on to develop mental health problems. So that's my mission now to build our collective resilience and well-being 
and make the world of work a better place for my sons and future generations to be. Wow, gosh, that's quite a story, Hilary. Um, I think many of us can resonate with the, um, the attraction of delving into a box of old letters and photos, um, yeah. but it probably doesn't quite unravel into the type of story you've just shared. Um, well, firstly, let's say thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's that's fantastic. I think we've got quite a lot to unpack here. So I'm going to dive right in, if that's okay. And I just ask you, Hilary, you know, in the story, you described yourself as a people pleaser. You say that you acted and behaved how you thought others wanted to see you. And yep. you were saying that, you know, you, you, you became an expert at reading the room. Was, was that exhausting? It must have been exhausting. Was it exhausting? And, you know, was there a huge sense of relief when you finally let go of that? Absolutely. Yeah, it was exhausting um, and, it, and it was a real relief. But I have to say it didn't disappear overnight. Mm. I wasn't aware or conscious of that people pleaser pattern for quite some time. Um, and it took a long time for me to trust. You know, I'd been brought up to not trust people. Um, and mm. I, I'd experienced bullying at school, like my mum had, that pattern repeated itself. So I felt for a long time it was safer to give others what I thought they wanted. Um, but it, this pattern of meeting others' needs to meet my own became truly unsustainable once I started working in mental health. You know, once I was working in acute mental health, and absorbing so much other distress, it, it, I needed to start looking after myself in a better way. Um, yes. So that was the that was the catalyst, really. I, I reached a point of overwhelm and burnout, um, and that's when I sought therapy and and that and and later on coaching, which and they both gave me this language and tools to deepen my self awareness, become aware of my inner world, if you like, mm. um, and then that helped me sort of share more openly with others and and build that real connection that I'd I'd always craved that sense yeah. of belonging. I, I think that having you, you know you've you've really put it nicely into two little steps but there's so much in both of those but sort of identifying yeah. it as as one you you discovered there was a label for how you were feeling and yeah. two you discovered that there was something you could do about it and that sounds so easy putting it in two little steps like that but you know that that encompasses years and years of your learning and experiences doesn't it and also, I think when we are struggling with a mental health issue, we think it's us that's the problem. We don't actually realise that we have, you know, there's something that it, it takes, it affects, I mean, it affects how we feel about ourselves. Mm. But actually, it isn't who we are. Who we are is separate to the anxiety. I, I, I'm not explaining this very well. That no, that, but that is, that's, <laughs> that is, that's comforting to hear because we do blame it on ourselves. Why do I feel like that? Why, do I, why did I just We think that? it's why just do, us. Yeah. Yeah, yes, but yeah. And, and actually, anxiety is a human condition that everybody experiences to a small extent or a large extent, depending on what we go through. It's actually a normal, healthy state if we learn to manage it. Yeah, well, I, I want to jump in here because I want to pick up on some of the things that you learned when you started to research anxiety and some of the strategies that you put in place. You know, you talk about how it empowered you, how it set you free. And, and you mentioned these terms, these saboteurs, and how that the saboteurs are formed in our early childhood. And you talk about your pleaser saboteur and as if you've made best friends with your pleaser saboteur and your hyperachiever saboteur. <laughs> how, how, 
I think my question is around, you know, are there other saboteurs and what benefit is it to us if we understand, you know, do we all have saboteurs and can it help us if we understand what our saboteur tendencies are? Yes. It's it's short answer to that question is yes, we all have saboteurs. Um, So just as we all experience anxiety, we all develop these patterns of dealing with stress and challenge in our childhoods. They're called saboteurs in the positive intelligence kind of format that I'm trained in. Um, and, and they form in our childhoods as helping us, it's our, the way our brains evolved to help us cope with challenges that we faced growing up. Mm. Um, so everybody has a universal judge, that inner critic that we can all relate to that tells us that we're not good enough and finds fault with ourselves, but also our judge will criticize others and find fault in circumstances. Yeah. And then there's a whole, there's nine other saboteurs in total alongside this judge. And we tend to have one or two that we develop as our predominant means of coping. So so mine, as you heard in my talk, was the pleaser yeah. and hyperachiever. My husband, for example, has got a really strong stickler. So he's a real perfectionist and he has strong avoider, which can cause, you know, friction in relationships. Uh, believe you me, there's been many a time we've had arguments over how we load the dishwasher because his stickler <laughs> wants it done a certain way. Um, so, you know, they impact on relationships and his avoidance can be really frustrating when I just need him to face up and do something. Um, my mom, as I, as I said, had hypervigilance. My dad was a real controller. He had this anxiety-based need to control. And, and you know, that can be really undermining if, you, if you're a leader, for instance, in an organization, because you're then undermining your, your kind of colleagues sort of ability to use their initiative, which is what we want to see more of. And, it, you know, people resent that sense of control. So if we're aware of these patterns, it then allows us... To, to see the impact they have, not just in our relationships, but they undermine our peace of mind. Um, they lead to a lot of the stress that we create for ourselves, let alone what life throws in our path. Mm, um, and if we can become aware of them, that then puts us at choice as to, we then can, we can learn to intercept them and choose more helpful ways of, of showing up, if you like, and, and learn to respond in a, in, a, in a kinder way to ourselves, but also to those around us as well. Yeah, of course, because anyway. that's just such a hugely, you know, valid point. It's it's almost all very well us doing the work on ourselves and understanding ourselves better. But of course, if we do understand ourselves better, we can recognise traits in others. And yeah, make our you know connections with other people that much stronger. Absolutely, that's so interesting. I, I want to pick up on something else that you said as well. I'm just I'm fascinated by this whole area. One of the things that you you, you mentioned was the higher brain and the lower brain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, can you elaborate and explain to us a little bit what you mean by that and, and why is that important? So we have, you know, our brain is made up of two large regions, really. There's this primitive survivor brain, which is the lower brain, um, which is um, where our fight or flight response, the anxiety stress response is, is comes from this lower limbic brain that we have. I, I call it the survivor brain. Um and that's that, that's what we had when we were prehistoric cavemen and women and you know we it, it's there to help us survive the stresses and, and and the threats that we have in our midst in our prehistoric days it would have been you know um saber-toothed tigers or um, rival tribes people coming at us with spears and we would we would use this part of our brain to detect the threat and to then uh 
either choose to flee or to fight or to freeze, which is the other response that can happen as well. Um, and there's a fourth one now. They found fawn, which is a bit like pleasing, actually, funnily enough, um, which is a, another another response to, to the stress. We also have, though, this higher cortex. So when you think of a brain, you tend to think of the brain being the cauliflower. It looks like a cauliflower, doesn't it? I always think of it like a cauliflower. Yeah. So the higher brain is is our, we've, we've evolved since our prehistoric days, this, this higher cortex in two halves, left half, left hemisphere and right hemisphere. But the higher brain is where all our rational thinking comes from. So, and our ability to concentrate and our ability to make decisions, our ability to be creative and innovate comes from the higher brain and our ability to empathize, which is quite important in these challenging times. Um, but what tends to happen is that whenever the, our, our, our sort of survivor brain, lower brain, detects a threat in our midst. So in our primitive days, it would be a physical threat. Obviously, we've all been, you know, we're still learning to live with COVID. There is this kind of invisible threat in our midst. Um, but it tends to these days be triggered by psychological threats. So uncertainty being a big one, lack of control, lack of autonomy of the same kind of thing, or feeling um something being unfair, unjustified, or feeling like we don't belong. These are all examples of psychological stresses that, that our primitive brain then responds to or reacts to. And once that lower brain kicks off, we lose our higher brain faculties because we are responding to the danger in front of us. And that's why saboteurs, saboteurs around negative thoughts that we get caught up in, in that fight or flight response. That's fascinating. Does that make sense? It absolutely it does. makes yeah. sense. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. And you can learn. This is the crucial thing. This is the part two of my kind of my, um, you can learn how to recognize when you've been triggered or hijacked and, and to bring your higher brain back online, if you like. You know, you can, you can learn. There's practical tools and techniques that you can learn to get your faculties back so that you can think more clearly and you can be more creative in how you problem solve. But you can also be more empathetic to yourself and others in those challenging times. So you can literally recognise it in yourself. Once you've learned it, you, you can recognise it in yourself and you know you've got a little coping strategy that you can deal with to bring yourself back round. Depending on the stressor, yes. <laughs> you know, right. if you do, yeah. you, yeah. some, I still get hijacked. You know, I'm, I've done the positive intelligence program. It was my more recent past piece of personal development and I loved it so much. It's why I now deliver it as part of my coaching. But, um, you know, we all get hijacked to a certain extent, but that you recover quicker when you yeah. learn these techniques. Mm -hmm. So, so How you can know, we go about, when you were saying about the, 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 the different, the nine saboteurs, you know, how can we go about learning whether we're the type that doesn't like yeah, yeah. dishwasher being unloaded in a certain way. <laughs> whether you I'm have the strong stickler. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a free assessment tool that I could um, share with you. Um, uh, when people come for a, a sort of a, come to speak with me, I quite often get them to do this free assessment. It takes five minutes, and then you get a, a readout that tells you, you know, which where you score out of ten on each of these um, saboteurs. That's great. Excellent. Okay, thanks for that. So, can I just just I don't, don't know whether this is winding back going forward, um, but in, in the discussion somewhere, I just I just can we clarify that we're not born with resilience? It's a totally learned behaviour. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we tend to think some people are more naturally resilient than others. That, um, 
some people are more naturally optimistic than others and that therefore mm. means that they can you know they, they they don't take things so personally mm. but resilience none of us are really born with it uh we develop it over time um resilience is about this ability to be flexible in how we think feel and behave um which uh and we develop it through the adversities that we face. So we develop our resilience over time, but we can fast track it. There are, there are specific tools and techniques we can learn, very practical tools and techniques that help us build our resilience muscles. So it's, that's, that's the positive thing here. Yeah. Okay, good. And just another thing that I wanted to ask, um, just going back to your story and, and, and listening about your mum, you know, she she must have had a, a dreadful childhood, yeah. um, a, you know, a, 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 for all lots of different reasons. Um, but I know that you said that she she had problems sort of trusting people and, and not showing emotion. And, and also that's part, that not showing emotion and sort of pretending to be tough is also a bit of an old school attitude as well, isn't it? So, yes. she, yeah, it was... Um, but it was not just that. It was obviously it was something that she'd learned that through her childhood. But did she? It's a bit of a personal question, actually. And, um, and feel free to decline. But I'm just wondering: did she? Was she able to show affection? Did you feel loved? And and I know that that doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that she was hugging you all the time, or she wasn't hugging you all the time. And people show love in different ways. But was she able to communicate that as a mother to you? I always knew I was, la- well, how can I explain this? My mum's not a hugger. <laughs> My dad was the affectionate one. That was the contradiction because he could be so volatile, but he was also the most loving, if I'm mm. honest. Mm. My mum, I knew, loved me, but she was very limited in her range of showing that. So she showed it in very practical ways. She'd show it through cooking or you know, making my outfits like I described yeah. earlier. When or her love was, her love was shown yeah. in very practical ways, which yeah. I didn't always appreciate as a younger woman. I've certainly grown to appreciate more, you know, the older I am. If my mum would hug me, she would she would hold and then she'd pat. You know, there'd be there'd be an element. She she was so uncomfortable with keeping her arms around there that she'd have to pat. You know, there was this thing of keep your distance. Yeah. Yeah. And she yeah. but, but she grew up in an environment. Obviously, her mum was was you know um, quite unwell. And her dad would just, if she tried to hug him, he'd push her. I don't be so ridiculous, you know. So mm. you, can't, you can't give what you don't have. She did no, the very absolutely. best. She yeah. did the very best with what she had. And, you know, I never went without or went with, you know, I was always looked after in a material sense. But yeah, you know, if I tried to talk to my mom about how I felt, she'd always be busy doing because she couldn't mm. she couldn't cope with hearing what was going on in my world because it would just tap into her hurt that she hadn't processed. Yeah. And you, when you didn't know what that was about, because I didn't know till I was 25, I just internalized it was me that can't, you know, it's I, there's something wrong with me rather than yeah. she doesn't know how to process this and hold it for me, if you mm. see what I'm saying. <laughs> but let me tell you, if someone sat at a singer sewing machine making a blooming ballet outfit, they really love you. <laughs> <Absolutely. Surely. laughs> this is what I mean. Yeah. There's different ways of showing love, and that was Absolutely. one of her ways. Yeah, yes. Thank you for answering that. Um so just moving forward, I've I've heard um earlier from Isla that it's mental health awareness week coming up. So obviously yeah. you're gonna be quite involved in that. And and there's usually a theme, isn't there? What's what's the theme this year? Well, I think it's quite timely because this podcast is going out in May, is it not? Um, and the theme this yes. year is loneliness. Yeah. 
which does have a link, I think, with what I describe here. You know, I felt emotionally quite lonely as a younger person um, until I built those true connections. And, and, you know, feeling lonely or being socially isolated, being excluded, depending on the circumstances, is the biggest risk factor for developing mental health problems. And it's, you know, it's it's become such a big thing because of the self, you know, the, the isolation and in the pandemic um, and, you know, that need to keep our distance. We are wired to belong and to connect. Um, so it's so important, really, that we kind of raise this issue and, and we mm. help people to find ways to meaningfully connect with one another. Mm. Yeah. OK, so that's that's good. That's yeah. So we, we will be airing this in May. So um, that's, I think that's, that's great. perfect timing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Um Next question, <laughs> try and pack it all in. All of your learning and your experiences have led you to this, this current role that you've told us about as a resilience coach. Now, that must be really fulfilling to, you know, for you to, it's kind of like paying back in a way, isn't it? Supporting others yeah. who have now got, you know, similar experiences to the to the ones that you had. Yeah. Are you, do you, you go into work with a hop and a skip every day? I love it. I love what I do. Um, I feel very blessed to be able to do what I do. And it's a re- it is fulfilling to be able to help others to, to learn the same tools that I, I mean, I still use these tools myself. Um, mm. You know, they're they so simple, but they make such an impact. And helping others, you know, that, that feel lost or overwhelmed. I, I quite often work with leaders or professionals that are, are nearing burnout themselves They've often lost sight of themselves in all of the doing and all of the busyness. I mean, there's a lot of this going on right now. Mm. And it's really rewarding to help them reconnect to themselves and build these resilience muscles so that they can then go on and achieve what they want to in their careers or their leadership or whatever it is, you know, their, their room of business. And they then can have a bigger impact on others. They role model resilience to some extent. And so it's that ripple effect that I can see, mm. yeah. you know, making a difference is a really huge driver for my work big value of mine absolutely I'm 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 interested I mean we've done it ourselves today in the sense that you know there are these terms coach counselor therapist and and I do think that maybe there's is there is a misunderstanding between what the difference of these you know what these terms are and the difference um between them so I just wondered would you explain that a little bit you know, for us so that we can really understand what the difference, because there is a difference between a coach, a therapist and a counsellor, isn't there? There is. Yeah. So, I mean, I have experienced both, obviously, I've described that. I've also trained in both. At one stage, I thought I was going to become a counsellor and then I discovered coaching and went on a different route. So they are, there's, they are, uh, there's similarities, but there are key differences. So therapy, counselling um, or therapy is is very much to do with understanding yourself in relation to your background and your past. Certainly counselling is, there's different forms of therapy, but in a broad sense. Um, and, and if you're feeling stuck in, in, in life, if, for instance, if you've had um, a, a sort of a marital breakup or a, you know, a, a loss of some kind and you can't move forward, sometimes it's, it's about unpicking what the significance of that was emotionally um, and, and putting it in the context of, of how you grew up and why that's affected you in a certain way. So there's a lot of emotional processing and understanding of yourself and learning insights as to why you behave and, and feel the way you do. Yeah. Coaching um, 
is about taking you from where you are now and and and, and helping you thrive and, and and achieve in a future sense. So it's less uh, in a very broad brush. Therapy is about helping address the past and, 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 and the impacts of that in the present. Coaching is about taking you in the here and now and moving you towards a future that you aspire to be. So it's working very much as an OT. I worked a lot similarly. This is why I loved coaching. It's about working with the strengths that you have. It's about your values. It's about what has meaning and purpose for you. And then it's helping you harness those and developing that self-awareness piece to then go out there and overcome the, build your mindset so that you can overcome those saboteur fears or whatever it is that holds you back from getting that promotion or um, developing that business or, you know, whatever it is, the next, the next challenge that you want to achieve, it's getting you there. So it's much more helping you thrive and flourish um, which counselling does do, but it's it's. I think coaching builds on that. Would be my experience. Well, that's interesting to have that. You know that 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 explanation um, of of those terms. I think that's really helpful. So I think what for somebody who may be listening at the podcast today who is feeling anxious or you know very lonely to the point where they think actually I need some help. I'm not really able to manage this. You know myself, as you said, this is going on longer. I can't quite get myself out. Um, I can't get myself out of this by myself. I need some assistance. What What's your advice as to their best next step? Okay. Well, there's several layers to this. I mean, firstly, from a self-care point of view, find someone you trust to talk it through with. Um, I think we can, when, when we're experiencing anxiety, like I was saying earlier, we can think it's just us. It's me that's yeah. at fault. Actually, when when you normalize it, but when you speak it out loud and, and other people can normalize it. So finding somebody who's earned the right to your trust, I would say, would be important. Mm. But you know, when you know when you speak it out loud to other people and they say, Oh yeah, I felt like that, or they can normalize it, it helps normalize that process and it helps you get a bit of perspective on it. Um, I I write things out, I journal. So if I'm feeling anxious about something, I will often process in just free form, whatever I'm feeling, I'll get it out on paper. And that way, again, I get some perspective. It helps me to kind of think through what I want to do with it. Um, just a reminder that when we're anxious, our thoughts are being run from our survivor brain and they are typically negative. So there was a tip. I used to work in the psychological therapies team. It was my last role as a mental health practitioner. Um, and one of my... Co- Cognitive behavioral therapy colleagues had a picture on the wall of a donkey. Um, this is relevant. I know I've signed up and going off on a tangent. And he had like a, a straw hat and his ears were poking up through. And it, the, the caption on this picture of the donkey's head said, don't be an ass. Don't believe everything you think. And that's so true. It's true of anxiety. Yeah. You know, we, we get so caught up in this story that we tell ourselves. And oftentimes it's, it's, we're stuck in one perspective and there's many other perspectives that we can have. So just recognize that one of the traits of anxiety is the negative thinking that we get literally hooked by and caught up in. Um, another thing, very practically, would be about calming your, your system down, your nervous system down with breathing. So, you know, as a clinician, I used to do anxiety management groups and now I teach resilience. But it's very much about you can really change the way you think and feel by how you hold yourself and how you breathe. Um, and scientifically, there's there's you know, there's a lot of research looking now at how you can change your emotions by how you hold yourself and breathe. So proper deep belly breaths, um, making your out breath longer than the in breath. So there's um, I call it seven eleven breathing, but breathing in for seven, breathing out for eleven, or if that's too long, maybe a five and an eight. 
that can help really calm your system down, which is a really healthy thing to do. Um, exercise as well, but for mild to moderate anxiety and depression, exercise is as effective as taking a pill or going to see a therapist. So making sure that you're 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 kind of moving and getting sufficient cardiovascular exercise. Again, I think because you breathe so much more deeply when you do exercise. But if none of the above make a difference, then I would say speak to a professional, you know, reach out and ask for help. It's a real strength to do that. And, you know, it goes back to that thing about my mum saying it was a weakness to show how you feel. Actually, the opposite is true. It's a real strength to do that. Um, you know, reach out and, and ask to speak to a therapist or find a coach that, that has got that, that experience. There are coaching psychologists and others out there that can help as well as myself and, and others in this field. Mm. That's really useful. Thank you. Really, really useful. And just as we're we're coming to the end of time, can I ask you, Hilary, what's happening with you at the moment? What are you working on? Yeah, so I have developed a resilient leaders program um, to help managers, particularly middle managers in organisations to build their emotional intelligence. I think, you know, that we've got this great resignation going on at the moment after the pandemic and the lockdowns and, you know, people have reassessed their lives, but they also don't want to put up with these toxic work environments. Um, So there's a real need to equip managers with the skills to handle sensitive conversations with empathy, to to be able to to support their colleagues with their their health and their well-being in its broadest sense. Um, But particularly middle managers, I've noticed in the work that I do, they're really squeezed in the middle. I call it the shit in the you, Ben. Sorry for swearing. (laughs) (laughs) Am I allowed to swear? Um, Take the girl out of Crayford. You can't take Crayford out of the girl. It's it's this thing that you know you've got higher management that are making the decisions, and then you've got you 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 are the one as the middle manager that's got to kind of tell it to the frontline staff, and you get the flack from them and the flack from above, and you're basically stuck in the middle. But they're also going through their own experiences with the pandemic and their own life challenges, so they really need support. And and going back to that higher lower brain, you know, we're expecting managers to be empathetic, but if they are stressed, that lower brain takes over. You literally can't access the empathy circuitry in the higher brain unless they know how to switch that off. So that's what I do. I teach them. I've got this whole program where I develop the self-awareness. I build their resilience and help them to develop the self-management tools to regulate their response. And then I go on and teach them to deepen their empathy and other communication skills so that they can better support the people that they work with. And, and is that an online course? Or is yeah, that... it is. It is online. And the, the positive intelligence component of that is online. Um, I can also, depending on where people are, uh, there's, there's a mixture of online uh, mental fitness uh, resilience program, the positive intelligence program. And then there's workshops, which at the moment, I mean, most of my workshops and webinars have been online. I can mm. also do face to face if people are in the office environment. There's a lot of hybrid now, isn't there? So it can yes. be a mixture. Yeah. 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 No, that all sounds okay. really fascinating and very valuable. So for anybody who wants to find out more about their programs or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Okay, so they can uh, email me, hillary at theresilienceconsultancy.com, or they can check out my programs on my website, which is theresilienceconsultancy.com. Excellent. That's great. Um, Well, we come to the end of of the podcast. And um, before we wrap up, Hilary, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, for sharing what was really a personal story. 
we're really grateful for that as as well as being in awe of your resilience <laughs> um, and all your learnings. Um, Isla, what are you going to take away from today's discussion? I, it's hard to pick one. There always is, isn't there, I, I think, I know. In, in, in our shows. And I think... I think what is fascinating me and what I'm going to investigate further is these saboteurs, you know, these nine saboteurs, which I think are, are dominating my life, I think. And uh, and it's great news that it's not my fault that they were formed in my childhood. But uh, clearly, I need <laughs> blame to your do some research. <laughs> Us mothers get the blame for everything. Yeah, <laughs> we do, don't we just? <laughs> you know, I think that. Um, yes, I'm going to be fascinated. I, and thank you for saying that you'll share the online tour with us. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, I think after the show, I think I'm going to go and do that and find out what my saboteurs are. So how about you? I, I, I think that I'm going to take, um, as, as I'm, I'm equally as interested in that as well, actually, but I think I'm going to take um, just, just a line that, that you mentioned was... Uh, resist, persist, you know, if, if if that's a great bit of advice because you're saying, you know, what we resist will persist. And, you know, I think that it's good to, to know that, you know, we've got to stop resisting these feelings, acknowledge them and find a solution. Otherwise, it's just going to go on and get worse. So I, I think that, you know, that's something really worthwhile to take away at the end of the show. Hillary's details will be in the show notes, as Isla says, and she's mentioned that she's happy to have a chat and signpost people, even if she can't help. So um, that's fantastic. Thank you, Hillary, for that. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Time to say thanks to Paul Cheese, our super sound hero and composer of our little jingle. Isla, do we have anything else, any other announcements to say before we wrap up? We have a couple of points uh, this time. If you're interested in podcasting, you might like an event coming up this month, uh, the Podcast Show. It's a two-day event on the 25th and 26th of May at the Design Centre in Islington. Lisa and I are going to be going, so if you're mm-hmm. thinking of coming along, let us know. We can meet up with you. Details can be found at www.thepodcastshowlondon.com. And my second point is just to remind you all that Mental Health Awareness Week runs from the 9th of May until Sunday the 15th. And the theme, as we've discussed earlier, is loneliness. And we're being encouraged during that week to build meaningful connections with our family, friends, colleagues and communities. So pop that in your diary. Please support where you can, even if it's just by wearing one of the green ribbon green ribbon pins to show that you care. And finally, don't forget, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at The Biz Diary. And please share your feedback and thoughts from this episode. Yes, do give feedback. That's, it's really useful for us. And actually, thanks go to everyone who did get in touch. Um, we our last podcast with Jay Sahota. That, that certainly seemed to um, strike a chord with um, sort of workplace bullying. So finally, thanks go to you, the listener, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion and that you'll join us for the next one. Bye for now. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. 